you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. And we invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. Go ahead and find Luke chapter 1. We are working our way through the Christmas nativity section of Luke here. And hopefully meditating on the Christmas story is making you feel a lot cooler in the heat wave and you're thinking winter thoughts. We're in chapter 1. We're going to look this morning on just a short little section that is, uh, we could classify this as Mary's emotional response as she just becomes emotionally overwhelmed with what God has done and is going to do through her and in her life. And so she has sort of this poetic emotional response. Verses 46 through 56. So remember the, the context. Mary has been visited by the angel Gabriel, as has Elizabeth. And they both have been told about a miraculous pregnancy and um, a significant birth in the sense that Elizabeth will give birth to John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Jesus. He is Elijah in the spirit to announce the coming of the Messiah. And of course, Mary will, will be the mother of God. She will give birth to Messiah himself. And so... Um, uh, they have both received the news, and last week we saw how Mary goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, and there's this interaction there between Mary and Elizabeth, and there's also the interaction between John and the Messiah, as John's role, so to speak, as his job begins, even in the womb, he announces, there is Messiah. Messiah has come, he is here. So we're going to look this week at verses 46 through uh, 56, and um, keep it in mind, as Luke is writing here to Theophilus, he has some goals in mind, some things that he wants Theophilus to understand. I think in this section, as he's recounting Mary's response here, what he wants Theophilus to see, that we'll keep in mind as we work through this, he wants Theophilus to see the, the heart of a true Christ follower, the heart response of a true follower of Christ. So, um, looking here at verse 41 or so, Elizabeth comes to Mary, and we remember this from last time. She exclaims um, with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And she says, uh, Blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And I think of those words... Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? I think that is what really grips Mary and leads her into these words that, that she's going to say that we'll look at now. The, uh, the, just the reminder that she is the mother of Messiah. I think that she's had time for this, this to sink in now. It's been perhaps a few days, maybe a few weeks since she received word. And she's made this long journey. And um, even, even so, even, even, even though this news is not brand new to her, it evokes the following response from her. So reading from verse 46, Mary said, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So, we read in the words here that that Mary speaks from this emotional sort of outpouring, this spiritual connection that that she makes once again with the truth that Gabriel has spoken to her. I think we see some some things that Luke wants Theophilus to kind of get his mind around. Remember, Luke is giving Theophilus an orderly account of the life of, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and the birth of the church. He's giving Theophilus this orderly account that his faith might be made secure. Maybe he's at the beginning stages of faith. Maybe he's curious. Maybe he is a believer and just young in his faith. But Luke wants Theophilus to see what the heart of a true Christ follower sounds like. And I think a number of things jump out at us from from the passage. And I think the first thing that, that jumps out Well, perhaps it doesn't jump out at us, but once we sort of see this, I think it'll become clear. One of the things that's clear in her words is that Mary's words are absolutely filled with Scripture. What Mary says, I think we could go so far as to say that what she says are not her words, but what she's speaking are the words of Scripture. Now, it may not sound that, um, it may not sound to us like Mary is quoting Scripture per se. But if you did have your notes to kind of follow along, then we could see how the words that she speaks are a paraphrase and a culmination and, and even using the same wording of Psalms 103, 22, 44, 89, 98. Those Psalms we distinctly see in her words here, as well as the words of Hannah. You remember Hannah? from the story of Samuel. She was Samuel's mother. Remember, she was barren. And then God gave her a child in her barrenness as well. And then Hannah has this poetic response as well. We also see uh, clear connections there with the words of Hannah, as well as some connections with the words of Isaiah and Job. And all of those are, are right there in what she says. It doesn't. We don't have to manipulate the words to see it. Oftentimes, when words are translated from one language to another, sometimes it can be difficult to sort of maintain the flavor and the flow. And for that reason, it, 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 sometimes we read where perhaps the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, and then we look back to where that actual quote, quotation was taken from, and, and the words don't exactly match. Sometimes it's a translation thing going on. Sometimes it's it's the speaker putting that idea in their own words and using perhaps some different phrases, but it's nonetheless quoting what Scripture says. So what Mary has to say here is quoting Scripture. She is overwhelmed with this emotional response and what comes out of her 
is Scripture. She is displaying, I think for Theophilus, she's displaying the heart of the Christ follower that loves His Word. Christ followers, true Christ followers, we love the Word of God. We love to hear it read. We love to hear it preached. We love to hear it spoken. We love to read it ourselves. We are people that love the words of God. Now that's not to say that, that as Christ followers, we always are just joyful to pick up our Bibles. And sometimes we have to make ourselves do that. Sometimes I have to make myself read my Bible or, or uh, sometimes I have to make myself prepare a message. But that is to say that there is a general adoring of the Word of God in the hearts of His people. It's not, um, it's not an unpleasant thing for us to read His Word. We love reading it. We love memorizing it. We love meditating on it. And Mary shows that the heart of a Christ follower is one who has taken the Word of God, like Mary has done, and hidden it in her heart. When, when she is sort of on an emotional autopilot, what comes out of her is the words of Scripture. You know what I'm talking about? When a circumstance happens, something happens, and you, you become overwhelmed emotionally. Your emotions are running high. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's um, frustration. And what comes out of your mouth is oftentimes something that maybe you'd characterize as, well, I didn't have any control over that. It just sort of came out. And then sometimes, like when we say words out of anger, later on we'll say, I didn't really mean that. I was just speaking out of anger. Well, Jesus tells us that you really did. Jesus tells us that what comes out of your mouth is really what's in your heart. And so oftentimes it's those times of emotional activity of, of, of emotional overwhelming that some of the things that are really in our heart come out. And sometimes they can be very ugly. In Mary's case, it's something very beautiful because what comes out of her as this, uh, as she's just sort of emotionally squeezed, what comes out of her are the words of Scripture. I often like to use, and probably most of you have seen me use the cup analogy, the cup analogy is just something that I've always found to be very helpful to help me to get my arms around the sin in my own heart and what I'm actually doing when I sin against others in my life. And the cup analogy kind of kind of goes like this. If I, um, if I had a cup in my hand, anybody have a cup that they're not using anymore? If I had a cup in my hand, then I, I could show you by, uh, you can't really do the cup analogy without getting everything wet. So just pretend that, that this cup is full of, of water to the top. And, and I hold the cup, and I do like this. And of course what happens is my hand gets wet, and my knee gets wet, and water's coming out. And I always ask the question, why is my hand and my knee and my leg, why are they getting wet? And oftentimes the, the immediate answer is because you're hitting the cup. Stop hitting the cup, and your hand will stop getting wet. And that's a good opportunity to, to make the point that, no, my, my hand's not wet because I'm hitting the cup. My hand's wet because there's water in the cup. Get the water out of the cup, and then it doesn't matter what I do to the cup, my hand stays dry. The point there is that the water is an illustration of sin, and the cup is an illustration of my heart. 
And my hand hitting the cup is an illustration of the stresses of life. The stresses of relationships, the stress of work, the stress of, of life. As my life is stressed, what's in my heart comes out onto everybody I know. And if what's in my heart is sin, then that means the sin of my heart comes out into everybody I know. And so the Bible's answer, well, let me back up and say the world's answer, what the world would say to us, in order to stop spilling your sin onto the people that you love, stop this. Manage this. Control this. You need to manage the stress in your life. You need to get stressful people out of your life. You need to make your life less stressful. And the Bible says no. First of all, that doesn't work. You can never stop this. But secondly, the Bible says the way to stop getting yourself and everybody else wet with your sin is get the sin out of your heart. And then whatever the stress of life brings, what's in the cup that spills out, it won't be your sin. I've always found that to be an incredible, useful analogy for me to just get my arms around what I'm actually doing when I sin against the people that I love. What's, what's happening is the stresses of life are causing what's in here to spill out onto them. Now to look at that in the reverse, in, in, uh, in Mary's case, as this happens in her life, what comes out of her heart is the Word of God, is Scripture. What a wonderful, wonderful truth that in her state of emotional sort of hyperactivity, what naturally comes out are the words of God. I think it was um, Lynn here, was a small group, was it, that you said, uh, you probably heard this in, in another form, but... Um, the, that cute little saying that says, I want to be so full of the Spirit that when a mosquito bites me, he flies away singing, there's power in the blood. You know, that's, that's, sort of, that's sort of a cute thing to say. But the truth of it is, we as people of God should be so full of His Word that when life squeezes us, what comes out of us is the Word of God. And I think that's what Luke wants Theophilus to see is that the heart of Mary was one that was so steeped in God's Word that that was her natural autopilot reaction. Here's an example. Here's where my sin wants to spill out. Let's say I'm doing a good godly thing. I'm like taking care of my home, cleaning my home. But then people in my family come and interrupt my good thing that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the good thing I'm doing turns into mm -hmm. uh, a selfish, prideful thing mm -hmm. that I'm doing mm -hmm. because then I'm really aggravated and words come mm -hmm. out of it. Because other people interrupted the the great plan, yeah, the good deeds that, that you were doing, um, isn't that so? Isn't that so true? And I can I can relate to that on on a shameful level, because um, I've been there so many times too. That you're in the middle of, of serving somebody, or doing something for the kingdom of God, and then something interrupts that, and boom, there goes your anger spilled out on the interrupt. How dare you interrupt me? when I'm doing such an important thing as this. So, yeah, I'm right there, with it, and it's a, it's a shameful thing. But that's why Jesus says to us, what comes out of your mouth is an indicator of what's in your heart. And it's such a fallacy to say, um, oh, I didn't mean to say that, I was just angry. And I think what Jesus would say to us, oh, in that moment, you were showing what's really in there. Jay Bird, Jay Bird McGee used to always say, I just love it. it was perfect. He goes, 
You never know what's in the tea bag till it's put in the hot water. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good Jay Vernon McGee impersonation, too. But uh, exactly. Um, to speak words of love and kindness that we carefully craft and have time to think through ahead of time, that doesn't show our heart like the spur of the moment shows our heart. Yes. And the spur of the moment shows, shows Mary's heart to be one that is full of Scripture. And secondly, um, I think Luke wants Theophilus to see that Mary's heart shows a heart of genuine humility. Look at verse 47. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's admitting her need of a Savior, her sinfulness. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So she says, she calls attention to, to um, her humble state, her lowly state. Um, she's showing, I think, the humbleness of her heart, which, by the way, she begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. How do we magnify the Lord? When we magnify something, of course, we don't make it bigger, but we make it appear bigger. We show it bigger. And so the soul that shows God bigger is the soul that is humble. It's, it's, um, if you think this through, you'll realize that it is not possible for a, a proud heart to magnify the Lord. It is only the humble heart that magnifies a humble Messiah. And so her humility, I think, is coming through. And, um, and, um, and I think that what Luke wants Theophilus to grasp here is he doesn't want Theophilus to make the mistake that we see so often made today. The mistake that goes something like this. God is a great God, and so He therefore favors greatness here. Or God is an exalted God, and so His people are exalted people. That is such an, an, a prevalent mistake that I hear so often. In fact, yesterday I had to make a car ride, and... Um, Saturday morning in the car is a very interesting time to try to find something on the radio. And, uh, you know, there, there are some good, some good biblical preaching on the radio, but not much. What is prevalent is the most um, heretical perversion of what Scripture... And so I ended up for about a minute and a half is all I could take. I ended up for about a minute and a half on this teacher that was so steeped in that mistake because God is a great God. He favors greatness in this life. Because God is an exalted God. His people are exalted people. And that is not uh, what, what Luke wants Theophilus to see. He wants Theophilus to see that God is a great God. We talked about that in the two previous messages where he wants Theophilus to see the greatness of Jesus. Jesus is greater than John, but he also wants to see the humility, the humble heart of a Christ follower. So Mary is showing a humbleness of her heart here. Now, if you think about this for a moment, I think it is quite extraordinary that Mary is so ready and willing to show a humbleness in her heart. Because think of the position that she's in now. She is the mother of Messiah. Messiah that has been promised for generation after generation after generation that Israel since he's been promised since Genesis three. But 
really since the time of Abraham, God has really put focus on Messiah that is to come. And that was centuries ago. And Mary's people have been looking for Messiah for so long, and now she is mother of Messiah. And she's had time for it to sink in a little bit. The shock of Gabriel, obviously probably threw her for a loop, but, but she, there's, there's been a few days or a few weeks that have passed, and this has sunk in a little bit. So the fact that she shows such humility at this point, I think, is, um, is, show, is telling for us that the heart of the Christ follower is a heart of humility. Someone said that we can have no more of Christianity than we can have of humility. We can have no more of Christianity than we have of humility. In other words, your Christianity can't be here and your, your humility here. Your humility is sort of the glass ceiling for your faith. Your, your faith does not outgrow your humility. The humble heart, the, the heart that is a heart of humility, is the greatest character trait of a Christ follower. It is the um, it is the most, I think, telling character trait for the Christ follower to have a humble heart. Because if we think about this, our Messiah, of course, is a humble Messiah. We talked about this in Ephesians when we were studying through Ephesians 5, the marriage passage and the wives submit to your husband's passage. And we talked about what is the single character trait of Jesus that the Gospels portray beyond all other character traits. And it was not love. It was humility. The Gospels portray Jesus over and over as a man of humility. And so how could we have the Messiah of humility in us and not also be humble people? And that's not to say that we don't struggle with pride. It's not to say that we are completely humble people, but that is to say that the person who claims to be a follower of Christ and has no humility, there's something that's not quite adding up there. Because we all do still struggle with that. I'm reminded of just how prideful of a person I, I really am. As I think of Mary, and as I think of her humble heart, and as I think of true biblical humility, what that looks like, and what pride looks like, I'm just I'm painfully reminded of what a proud person I really am. Here's one way that, that I think more often than not I'm reminded of my own pride. When I serve people and they treat me like a servant, I resent that. And that's pride. To serve people and then be treated as though you are a servant and not like that is an indication of pride in your heart. The, the humble heart, Dallas Willard put it, put it really well. He, he broke it down into discipleship in one sentence. I won't put it exactly like he put it, but discipleship in one sentence is doing without hesitation and without effort what Jesus would do if he were you. Without hesitation, effortlessly doing what Jesus would do if he were you. And Jesus showed us over and over a servant heart that serves without regard for recognition, without regard for thankfulness. Jesus never once said, you know, I'm dying for, for you people. You could be a little bit more thankful. He never once said that I am God in the flesh. Why don't you show a little respect? Instead, his heart was one that embraced 
humility and never, uh, never once was bothered by the lack of gratitude. Does, does that bother you when you serve others and the gratitude that you would expect doesn't come? Or the recognition that you would hope for doesn't come. You ever do things for people and, you know, you, you're supposed to be doing it in secret, but you kind of hope that they find out about it, that it was you. Or you kind of hope that people find out that you did that for people. That's, that's the pride in our heart. That's the lack of humility in our heart. And so Mary shows an incredible um, heart of humility. I think thirdly, Mary also shows a true thankfulness. She says, um, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And she goes on, I think, to flesh that out even more. But she shows a heart of true thankfulness. And I think it's easy to say, well, sure. She had a lot to be thankful for. She's the mother of God. Every Christian from that point on will call her blessed. But let's stop for just a moment. Let's remember the position that 12 or 13 year old Mary is in right now. She is pregnant and out of wedlock in a culture that could not be more harsh towards young girls that were pregnant and out of wedlock. This was, of course, a culture that stoned adulterers. We talked last time about this journey that Mary made this hundred mile journey and the fact that Luke says nothing about who went with her. Maybe that's an indication that her family maybe had the same reaction that Joseph had. Remember Joseph's reaction in Matthew's Gospel? Maybe her family has had the same reaction that Joseph has had and adulterers are stoned and maybe the safest place for her to be is a hundred miles away for three months. We also talked last time about the fact that in any other situation, this meant for Mary a life of prostitution or begging. Yet Mary has a heart that is thankful. And I think that's, that's telling because the true Christ follower does have a heart that is basically thankful. We struggle with gratitude and we struggle with ingratitude like, like others do, like non-believers do. But... The heart of a true Christ follower is a heart that is basically a grateful, thankful heart. Now we talk about gratitude and and we talk about how is it that we as Christians encourage gratitude in ourselves? How do we build gratitude? You know, like the song says, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And all that's true. And all that is biblical. It is biblical to count our blessings and remind ourselves of the blessings that God has given us. And that does feed our gratitude and the Bible does tell us to do that. However, let's recognize that true gospel gratitude does not come from circumstances. Whether it be recognizing good circumstances in our life or whether it be refocusing our mind from bad circumstances to good circumstances. Again, that's biblical. The Bible tells us to do that. But true gospel gratitude is not a result of circumstances. Instead, true gospel gratitude is a, is a matter of faith over circumstances. In other words, the heart of the Christ follower, the Christ follower is given a heart 
that has the faith that is capable of seeing good in all circumstances. Because we have the heart that knows that our God brings good out of all circumstances for those who love Him and those who are called according to His purpose. So while it is good and helpful and biblical to remind ourselves of all the positive circumstances that God sends our way, nevertheless, the underlying root of the Christian heart is a heart that doesn't look to circumstances for thankfulness, but instead, the faith, faith is the lens through which all circumstances, good or bad, are seen. And Mary displays that heart, a heart that, that is able to be thankful and grateful, even, even if it were to find no, quote-unquote, good circumstances to see. So she displays this heart of, uh, of thankfulness that is, I think, an indicator of a Christ follower. Number four, uh, Mary also shows, the way I put this here, Mary shows an expectancy that arises from knowing the story of God's people. Mary has a heart that knows the story of God's people. And because she knows the story of God's people, that causes her to expect certain things from God. Take a look at verse 50. And Mary begins at verse 50 to just recount how God has treated His people, how God has interacted with His, with his people. She says, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent empty away. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And He has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. In other words, Mary knows the stories. The stories have been taught to her since her youth. She has obviously spent a lot of time in her Scriptures. She knows the story of God's people. And she knows that to be a story in which God regularly shows unexpected grace to His people. Surprising grace to His people. Think of a story in, in the Old Testament of God's people in which God did not show unexpected grace. I can't think of one. Because I think every episode, whether it be one of God pouring out His wrath, or whether it be one of God granting victory over a giant, or whether it be one of God saving His people through a flood, whatever it may be, there's always an, a measure of unexpected grace and Mary knows that. And because she knows that that is how God interacts with His people, she therefore expects that that's how God will interact with her. This is why it's important for God's people to know the story of God's people. This is why we don't just study the New Testament. This is why we study the whole counsel of God's Word. Because particularly those Old Testament passages in which they, they teach us, this is what you are to expect of God. This is how God acts towards His people. So often we get the Old Testament wrong. And it's such a tragedy that we do. You know, you've heard, you've heard people say, well, uh, God said one man, one woman, but then look at David who had many wives. See, Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. Or whatever, whatever the instance. And you want to just say, you totally missed it. You totally missed it. 
The story of God's people is not a story of people that we're to emulate. It's the story of how God loves and interacts with his people that are sinful. And knowing the story of God's people causes us to have that same sort of expectancy. We've talked a couple of times in the last month or so just about our culture and just the, 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 um, the unpleasant directions that our culture has taken. We should be people that know the story of God's people and we think God just always shows surprising grace to us. We don't know how, but He always shows surprising grace to His people. And so therefore, we fully expect Him to do that now. Mary knows the story of God's people and that causes her to have great anticipation for how God will, will treat her in her time of scorn and, and her time of curse. So uh, we see that in, in her heart. The heart of the Christ follower is a heart that is expecting God to treat them with grace. And then lastly, uh, Mary shows us, I think, the unhindered belief in the promises of God. The unhindered belief in the promises of God. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's talking about nothing less here than the promise of the Messiah. The promise of Messiah who would come is now here through her. And he will be their sin bearer. He will bear their guilt. He will take away their guilt. He will cause them to be righteous and fully accepted by God. She does not know about the cross. She does not know how He will do this, but she knows that Messiah is promised and her faith is in Messiah. And she speaks of that faith in such a poetic, beautiful way that we should remind ourselves that the power of what Mary has to say is not in the, the beauty of her words. The power of what she has to say is in the fact that it is true and she believes it. Her words that she speaks, if, if you just sort of meditate on these are very poetic words. These are beautiful words that she speaks. And isn't it surprising, sadly so, isn't it sadly surprising how often Christian teachings can be so beautiful as to cause people to focus on the beauty of the words without believing them. How many times have you heard people sing a Christian song and they don't believe it? How many in recent years, how many Christian bands have we found out that, well, they never believed? They just liked singing that type of music because they found it uplifting and inspiring. Or um, I think of the song Amazing Grace. Probably the, the single most recognized song in the history of mankind. How many times has that song been sung by people who did not believe in amazing grace? Mm. But they believed in the beauty of what it had to say. Or uh, we were talking, again, I think it was a small group, we were talking about um, the movie. That, I don't know if it's out yet or not, but it's based on the, the book by Bill O'Reilly called Killing Jesus. And it's about just the historical death of, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And um, they're making a movie out of it. You may have read the stories about how this is the first big production movie about Jesus that actually cast, surprise, surprise, a Middle Eastern man to play the part of Jesus. There's never been a big production of a movie about Jesus in which a Middle, a, a middle Eastern man played the part of Jesus. And so you'd think, well, that's about time, right? But this particular Middle, middle Eastern man is a Muslim. He's a nominal Muslim, but he's a Muslim. And so I read an article in which he was interviewed, and, he, and, and the interviewer was talking about, you know, obviously you're portraying Jesus Christ in whom you can't believe. And he answered by saying that in preparation for this part, he studied Jesus, he studied the teachings of Jesus, and he found them beautiful. But you didn't believe him. Christianity can be beautiful without believing it. Or I should say, part of Christianity can be beautiful without believing it. Then we come to things like what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of the cross that the world finds disgusting. So, how remarkable that we can pick such beautiful parts out of our faith and people who don't even believe them can sing them and celebrate them while discarding the ugly part. But then the flip side of that, of course, is the phenomenon that is all around us today in focusing on what could be the beauty, what we could call the beauty of our faith without true belief. Mary's heart, she speaks these words that are poetic and highly beautiful, but that is not the power of her heart. The power is that what she's saying is true and she believes. She believes in Messiah that is to come. So um, there's more we could, see, we could find here, but I think those five things are, are some key elements that Luke is, is holding out to Theophilus to say, this is the heart of the true believer. We don't know where Theophilus is, but, but you do know where you are. And so in hearing those things, you can... You can assess your own heart. Does my heart love the Word of God? Or do I have to struggle through the preaching of God's Word? Is my heart a heart that, that generally characterizes humility? Not that I don't have pride that I struggle with, but do I have humility in there too? Is my heart a heart that is genuinely thankful and I don't need positive circumstances to make me thankful, but instead I have the faith that generates thankfulness, even in negative circumstances. Is my heart a heart that, that knows the story of God and His people and fully expects the grace that God has shown His people from the beginning to be the same type of grace that He shows to me? And lastly, is my heart one that fully and completely believes in the promises of God. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com 
forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.